We're finishing our marriage series today, and uh, let me first say welcome to those of you who are watching on church307.com, to the guys over at the prison, to our friends at the jail. In order to uh, do an illustration here at the beginning, I need two couples to volunteer to play a game with me. I'm not going to chain anybody up, uh, but I need two, two brave couples to come. Yeah, come on up. Who else? Yeah, come on, come on. All right. So you might have seen this game before. It's a communication game, and it's largely about how to read lips. Is is really comes down to who the winner is. So who's the brave, a brave couple? Why don't you go ahead and grab a seat? You've already lost. Optimism. Well, you you're the talker. You sat in that chair, so hopefully she can read lips. Okay, so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to put these headphones on you. It's going to play Pat, Pat Benatar really loud in your ears so you can't hear anything. And then he is going to mouth the words that he sees on the screen behind you. Or he's, he's going to say the words that he sees on the screen behind you. You're going to read his lips whenever, he, whenever you figure out what he says. Or you can just keep guessing. And when you say the right word, they're going to go to the next word. We're going to give you one minute to see how many words you can get in one minute. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right, so here we go. Here comes Pat. You can dance if you'd like to. It's, it's acceptable. All right, are you ready? Do you understand the rules? On your mark, get set, go. Jesus Christ. Nice one. Keep going. Just keep saying it. Quit going so fast. You can't hear me, so I'm kidding. Like, come and like, come pew. Oh, you're close. First part of the word. Okay. Come. Come. Okay. You. Me. Uh huh. You. Me. Onion. Onion. Come onion. Skip it. Go to the next word. I, like, to All right, there we go. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Nice. <laughs> okay, your time's up. Good job. Good job. Give them a hand. You got two. All right, next. We're going to see if they can beat you t- your two. Feel free to sing Hit Me With Your Best Shot over there and distract them more. All right, next up. You got this? Sure. You're the lip reader. You guys stay up here. You might have won. You get a prize if you won. All right, you can. All right. You're in the lead right now. There's a chance. It's, yeah, you got it. All right. Okay, you ready? Ready. On your mark. Get set. Go. Next one. Christian. <laughs> 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 no idea. Christ. Christ. Yeah. 
on. <laughs> Christian. Christian. Yeah, they got one. Time's up. <laughs> Good job. Give him a hand. You guys get a $25 gift card to the Purchase Project. Good job. You guys can fight later, okay? All right, I'm going to turn this off. Otherwise, it's going to be loud the whole time. Uh, communication. When we talk about marriage, you kind of knew that we were going to have a conversation about communication. So incredibly important in relationships. But the question I want to answer today is, does the Bible have anything helpful for us when it comes to communication. Is there any good advice that it can give us? Well, let me give you a hint in that direction. Did you know that the divorce rate decreases by 50% if you regularly go to church? Okay, so apparently something works. Now, you've heard the rumor that the divorce rate in the church is the same as in the world. It's a lie. It never happened. Do any research. Uh, that's just not true. If you go to church regularly, you are 50% less likely to get a divorce. Now, we would like that number to go up, and we would like to say everybody who goes to church is perfect, but that's just not true. There's a lot of us that still have a long way to go, and we're still, try we're still growing, we're still improving. But what this does tell me is that the Bible at least gives some good advice to help us be better. It helps us grow. And really, all of communication is about sacrifice. It's about generosity in our communication, and so the Bible has a lot to say about this. But before I move on, I feel like there's something that I have underemphasized in this series. We've talked a lot about divorce, but I don't think I've clarified enough that God hates divorce, but he doesn't hate you if you got a divorce, right? This is not a, a straight damnation if you've ever gotten a divorce. The Bible, or God tells us that he hates divorce because divorce hurts you. And divorces or and marriage is meant to be an image of our relationship with God, and that relationship should never end and should never be broken. So divorce, God hates it, but he doesn't hate you if you've gotten a divorce. Just God, just like God does not hate me for all the sins that I've committed. God is a generous, loving God, and if you've ever gotten a divorce, you should know that you are forgiven. That if you will repent and turn to God, that he, he will forgive that sin just like he has forgiven any other sins. Okay. You've probably heard, you probably know, that psychologists are notoriously bad at predicting behavior. They've worked all these scenarios out and all these tests and all these theories to try to figure out, can we predict who is going to do what? And they've kind of come to the conclusion that no, we, we can't. People are just too complex. When you look at their experiences and their opinions and their personalities and their temptations, when you combine all these things together, people are too complex to try to predict the behavior of people, except in one area. John Gottman says that with 96% accuracy, psychologists can predict, if they've been trained to do so, can predict if a couple will get divorced or not. Why is it? Why is it that with so much accuracy they can predict this behavior above all the other behaviors? And the, and the way they do that is they look for three things in a relationship. And if they can find these three things in a relationship, the chances of them getting a divorce skyrocket, okay? So those three divorce predictors are these things. Number one, criticism. Number two, defensiveness. 
And number three, stonewalling. They actually give four, but I combine two of them. I'm kind of simplifying it a little bit. But they look for these things in marriages, and if they see them there, then they can predict that a marriage is going to end in divorce. And the thing that gives me so much optimism is how much Scripture has to say about these three things. If you're worried about your marriage, the good news is the Bible's, the biblical advice for marriage counteracts these problems, these issues. So today I'd like to just take some time and go through each one of these three things and talk about what is the biblical prescription to avoid these issues in relationships. So let's go through them one by one. The first one is criticism. What if you had a spouse who is constantly telling you how their day went, but never ask you how your day went? It's all about them. Now, the truth is, most of us have experienced a scenario similar to this, because we're all sinful human beings. We all are tempted to be selfish, and so this is a common scenario. But you have a choice, then, if your spouse is acting this way, in how you, re- you respond to them. You can go to your spouse and say, babe, I just, maybe pick at a time when the emotions are not high and people are not angry, and you go to your spouse and you say, babe, I just want you to know that it hurts my feelings when you always talk about yourself and never ask me about myself, or ask me about my day. That's one way to start the conversation. Or you can go to your spouse and you can say, what is wrong with you, you selfish jerk? Right? You have the choice. In which way will you go to your spouse? Which way will you communicate? One is criticism, and one is conversation. Because if you go to your spouse and you say, what's wrong with you, you selfish jerk, how is he going to respond to that? Let me tell you what he's not going to say. He's not going to say, hmm, good question. That is an interesting question you, ask, you raise. Right. It's not leading to a conversation. It's leading to anger, frustration, argument. So when we do premarital counseling, this is one piece of advice that we give everybody we do premarital counseling with. Never insult. Ever. Don't call names. Even in a joking way. Because have you ever noticed that when you criticize somebody in a joking way, there's always a little bit of truth in it? It's like, I want to say something really mean, so I'm going to decrease it a little bit, and then I'm going to put a laugh on the end of it and hope that you think it's funny. No, that's the, what you're doing is re- tipping your hand. You're revealing a negative opinion or a negative feeling that you have. Never criticize. Never call names. Now, I am not saying that you should never disagree. I'm not saying that you should never point out errors or flaws. Those kind of conversations, if they're conversations, can be healthy. But never call names. Never be derogatory. You're a slob. You're so lazy. You're so dumb. These type of accusations do nothing to build the relationship. All they do is they satisfy a little bit of a selfish need that we each fill. Don't talk down to your spouse. This week, my son Lincoln and I were playing soccer, and I was the goalie, and he's trying to score on me, and he scored on me twice in a row, which I'm competitive, so normally I'm too tempted to not allow him to ever score. And so he scored on me twice in a row, and his response was, Dad, wow, I thought you were better at soccer than this. (laughs) I was like, well, that was rude. And he realized it was rude, and he was like, oh, I'm sorry, I mean... Man, if you can ever block one of my shots, you must be really good. 
Even your compliment was a little bit rude. I don't know. Here's the truth. Insults come from pride. You're such a jerk. What are you, th- what are you saying? I'm not. You are. You think that you are better than the person that you are insulting about. If somebody, if your spouse says, you're such a jerk, you only talk about yourself, they're not going to say, thank you for pointing out my flaws. I'll work better at that. Remember, the two of you became one person. So when you criticize him, you're criticizing yourself. The two of you are one flesh. When you build each other up, you build up yourselves together, your relationship. You, as a couple, become better. But when you hurt her, you hurt you. Jesus said it the famous way, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. The golden rule. And what do you want? Yes, you want your spouse to gently point out your flaws because that'll help you get better. But more than that, what you really want is for somebody who's going to recognize when you do good. Somebody who's going to recognize when you succeed or when you try hard. So we would say, even when you do point out flaws, you sandwich it. This is the phrase we use. Sandwich it with two good things, two uplifting things, two positive things. You're really good at this. You could improve at this but I really appreciate how you do this. Sandwich that. You've got to be strategic in the way you bring criticism, in the way you bring uh, correction to your spouse. And it's worth the time. It's worth the effort. Because the opposite way just leads to anger, frustration, division. Okay, so if the predictor of divorce is criticism, what's the solution to that problem? The solution, Scripture talks about praise. You should be your spouse's number one fan. Nobody should talk about your spouse as complimentary as you do. Don't let your husband hear only complaints from you and then go to work and hear only compliments from the lady he works with. What's that going to do? Eventually, that lady at work complimenting him regularly is going to begin to steal his affection from you. Don't allow your go-to words to be negative, degrading. Be uplifting. Be positive. Be optimistic. Now, guys, I'm not saying that if she's nicer to you, the girl at work is nicer to you, then you can go have an affair. This is not, this is not allowing our response. We're going to talk a little bit about defensiveness and the negative side of that as well. So this is not justifying any response to negative conversation or criticism. But we do need to be, recognize what we are doing when we regularly criticize is we're pushing somebody away from us. When it comes to our spouse, the whole goal is to bring somebody to us. Paul told the church in Thessalonia, encourage each other and build each other up. This requires you to change the way you see the world the way you see things happening in your life. Instead of regularly searching for things to criticize and giving negative reviews to everything and, and looking at what, what could have been better, instead you change your mind and begin looking for the good, looking for things to praise, to uplift. If you're naturally tempted to be annoyed by the actions of other people, by the failures of other people, 
then you are going to have to go out of your way to search for things to honor. If you tear down your spouse, you're bringing yourself down. No more insults. What do insults lead to? Not solutions. Insults lead, this is number two, the second predictor, to defensiveness. Next slide, there we go. If your spouse is attacking you, what are you going to feel the need to do? When you get attacked, a defense mechanism that's placed there by God rises up within you, and you protect yourself from that attack. And this does not work in marriage. When somebody is being attacked and somebody is being defensive, what ends up happening is space is created between those two people. We talked about this last Sunday. Marriage is meant for two people to become one person. No space. Total transparency. There's no boundary between us. We are one person. So within a marriage, you should feel incredibly protected by and loved by your spouse. You should feel that. That's the ideal. That's the goal. No space, no defensiveness, no separation. This relationship should be a safe space. And there are two types of defensiveness. The first type is deflection. This is when I meet a complaint with a complaint. I'm not the one who's always late. You're the one who's always late. I'm not the one who doesn't put the seat down. You're the one who doesn't put the seat up. (laughs) It goes two ways here. Every time there's a criticism, you can always meet the criticism with a criticism of the other person. However, if you get into the habit of receiving the criticism, then you can actually get better. Okay, the second type of defensiveness is victimhood. I think we're seeing a rising amount of this in our world. Victimhood is a defense mechanism that exaggerates problems in order to prove a point. You feel undervalued, and so you pretend like your life is harder than it is in order to get things from people that you don't feel like getting. And the truth is, it's incredibly selfish. Our world has started to glorify victimhood. Christians, we are not victims. We should run from victimhood. We are victors. And when we are partnered with somebody, then we lift each other up. We build each other up. And we don't pretend like things are worse than they are so that people feel bad for us. We should not celebrate victimhood. We should celebrate victory. We should celebrate progress and sacrifice. So if the, the divorce predictor is defensiveness, then what is the solution? We accept responsibility. You know you're right. I don't think I was asking you about your day because I was bitter. I realized I was thinking too much about myself and not about other people. I will accept responsibility for that. Even if she's not perfect. Even if she doesn't do it either. Even if she made mistakes too. I can accept responsibility for what I did. If we know that we are not perfect, why do we have such a hard time admitting it when we're wrong? We all know we're not perfect. Yet in the moment, we feel so right. Have you ever noticed that you always think you're right, but you know you're not always right? 
It's like in the moment, I'm sure I'm right, which is weird because I think I'm wrong sometimes, but right now I'm so right. It's, it, we've got to remove ourselves from the moment and tell ourselves, remind ourselves that it is at least possible that we are wrong, that we made a mistake. Paul ter- told the church in Galatia, we are each responsible for our own conduct. Even if you are only a small part of the problem, even if he made more mistakes than you did, then you admit the mistakes you did make. Then you admit the wrong that you did do. You know what scripture calls this? That's confession. Not saying, well, I'm better than so-and-so. Well, I'm better than those people. We confess where we are wrong. We repent of our sins and we choose to try to do better the next time. I'm sorry. I'll work on it. The third divorce predictor is stonewalling. This is emotional withdrawal. This is building a wall between you and your spouse. You know, when you're listening to somebody, when you're actively listening to someone, what do you look like? You're nodding. You maintain eye contact. Maybe you give some verbal feedback. You respond when there's a gap in the conversation. The stonewaller doesn't do these things. The stonewaller is so focused on themselves and how they've been wronged and what they're frustrated about and what they want and didn't get that they just shut down. There's no more two-way conversation. This is self-centered. Self-centered people stonewall. He's emotionally disconnected. And so what does she do? Well, she starts by shouting. He's not listening. He doesn't pay attention. He doesn't care. So I'll shout. Or I'll nag. And then eventually, if that doesn't work, then she's just going to go to her friends and talk about you rather than talking to you. Stonewalling, all it does is make things worse. You think in your mind, well, someday she's just going to figure it out and she's going to get better. I'm not going to say anything to her. Eventually, she's going to realize how terrible she is. It doesn't work. That requires a conversation. That requires two people lowering their pride, accepting responsibility, accepting criticism, and being gentle. So what's the solution to stonewalling? We say maintain intimacy. Scripture talks often about knowing your spouse. That's kind of the idea of what sex is supposed to be, like fully getting to know somebody. You should know what stresses your friend or your spouse out or your friends. You should know what excites them. You should know what's on their mind. You should know who they enjoy being around and when they're tired and need to rest. We talked about this way, this last week, but we have got to learn how to ask open-ended questions in order to get to know somebody well enough that I don't even have to ask anymore. I just know. And then I respond accordingly. I know you so well. The way God knows us eventually. Paul told the church in Philippi, don't look out only for your own interest, but take, on, take an interest in others too. When you disagree with your spouse, can you have a conversation about it without yelling, without fighting? 
Can you have a conversation in which you sincerely search for a solution? A solution that will satisfy him and her. You know what that's called? Compromise. It's a dirty word in our world, but it's a really good idea. Compromise. I'm not going to fully get what I want, and she's not going to fully get what we want. That's probably a good thing, because that's a good lesson for us to learn, that we shouldn't always get what we want. Can we have a conversation and come to compromise, or we just shut down? We don't even try. If I can't get my way, then we're not even going to try. Can I give you something practical? Turn toward bids. You know, in your life, everybody is bidding for your attention. You got the marketers, the commercials, the advertisements everywhere. You got your phone, social media begging for your attention. You've got your work, your friends, your hobbies. Everybody is bidding for your attention. And our habit is to just give our attention to the highest bidder who's got the most to offer me in this moment. But the way we are commanded, the way we are taught in Scripture how to give our attention is not based on who bid the highest, but based on who have I committed to. You committed to your spouse to give them all of yourself. And when your spouse bids for your attention, you give them the attention that they're asking for. And usually it's subtle. Usually it's not, hey, can you please give me your attention? That probably happens sometimes. But usually it's a subtle bid. Maybe you're driving down the road and and she says, look at that pretty sunset. And you've got options. You can turn to her, who's trying to now have a conversation with you, or you can turn to your phone, or you can turn to your radio, or you can turn to your thoughts about work and just shut down the bid. Denied. That's selfish. That is not the the biblical way to communicate. When she bids, you turn to her. You give her what she's asking for. And you can turn to bids in one of two ways. The first way is just acknowledgement. This is the okay. That's when you say, oh yeah, that is a pretty sunset. I acknowledge that you are alive. Or you can take it one step further, even better. Rather than just acknowledging, you can be an active listener. You can enter into her thought life. That would be enthusiasm, the second type of turning toward. You don't just say, yeah, nice sunset. You say, oh, that is pretty. Hey, remember that one time when we saw the sunset on our honeymoon or whatever it is? You add to the conversation. You build off of her bid. You bid back. And then, then all of a sudden you have an uplifting conversation that builds intimacy. Because this is the goal. Build intimacy. Because in your relationship, it's going to come and go. It, it, so you got to work at it. You got to do what's necessary to keep the, to build the intimacy and keep the intimacy. And when there is intimacy in a relationship, you can persevere. You also have more sex, but you can persevere through hard times. When, when little trouble comes up, when little pain comes up, you can make it through. Intimacy overrides minor problems. When there's no intimacy and a problem arises, then a little problem can turn into a big problem. A disagreement can turn into a fight. Because 
let's say you thought he was coming home. He'd be home at five from work. I thought you said you'd be home at five. No, I said I'd be home at nine. Or you can have that same conversation and you figure out where was the confusion? What happened? I thought you said you'd be home at five. Oh, babe, but I texted you, said nine. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Okay, that's fine. We've, we can work through this because there's intimacy, there's trust that has been built between us, but it's hard to get there. It takes time. It takes effort. Long-term intimacy requires effort. You know, relationships start with a sizzle, but they tend to fizzle. Over time, if you let them, intimacy fades. You have to keep investing in the relationship to keep the intimacy. Can I be honest with you? I do not like teaching this message. I don't enjoy this message. I don't like talking about marriage. It's not, I'm not really into emotions or, and I'm a terrible communicator in everyday life. Like, this is not natural to me. This isn't fun to me. But when I look at the relationships in our church, I look at the marriages, I look at the importance of this conversation, and I realize, you know what? This is something that I need to put my own desires aside and recognize the value the importance. Because Christians, our objective is to set an example for the world of what it looks like to sacrificially love someone. That's our objective. I need to demonstrate for the world God's, God's command to love God and love each other sacrificially. How do I love somebody? How do I love my wife the way God loved the church? I sacrifice. I've got to set that example. That's my command. That's not just something that will make my life better. It's who I'm supposed to be. Because my natural tendency, I get home from work and I want to enter my nothing box. Nobody talk to me. I don't care about your day. I don't care about why you're mad. I don't care about what we're doing tonight. I want to go sit in my chair and shut off. I don't care, right? But what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to have, throughout the day, saved some energy so that when I get home to my family, I'm investing in the relationships that are most important in my life. So I do this every day. every day. I'm not joking. I do it every day. I get into my driveway and I say a word to myself. Or if Darcy's with me, we say it to each other. I say energy. And that is my cue. It's me telling my brain, you better have saved some energy through the day because you're getting home and you need to spend some energy. Even if you feel like you don't have any left, you need to give something that you don't feel like you have. And every single night, I invest in my relationship with my kids. I invest in my relationship with my spouse because I believe it is worth the effort. It is worth the sacrifice. And usually, in conversations that I've had, it's usually the guy that's more like me that wants to enter the nothing box and she wants to talk about how your day went and that time of stuff. It's not always the case. Sometimes the, the, the girl is more the shutdown one and the guy is the more talkative one. But you've got to know yourself. Some of you realize that you're the talker and she's not. And so what do you got to do? You got to do the opposite. You got to slow down a little bit. When you're tempted to just go, 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 tell every piece of information because that's just, you're an external processor and that's how you think, you've got to recognize that temptation and you've got to sacrificially lay, lay that down. 
and begin to realize, okay, when have I gone too far? When have I talked too much? When have I shared too much? When have I asked too much? And when you get two people in a relationship who are willing to sacrifice their natural tendencies for what is best for the relationship, how can I better communicate to him? How can I better support him? How can I better be generous with her? When you get two people doing that, you talk about intimacy. That's the kind of love. You look at the old couples that are still together and somehow still really love each other. Like it's visible that they still really love, love each other. They have figured out a way to build intimacy over time. And usually, that's in the way they communicate. In the way they support each other. In the way they praise each other. They're generous with their words. They're optimistic. This is what we're called to do. This is the biblical way. And I promise you, if you get it right, if you do it well, it will divorce-proof your marriage. It's the right way. God, I thank you for setting an example of what it looks like to love your bride. I pray that we would just give the world a glimpse of how that can be done in today's world. We love you. And th